Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. When we were planning today's show, we were focused on the growing disputes about reopening America after the pandemic, the ways that stores and institutions and public spaces are being asked to adopt new safety protocols, and the ways in which we, as citizens, are being asked to respect those protocols. We wanted to talk about rights and whether these basic requests for things like mask wearing or hand washing or distancing bump up against the rights that we all cherish as Americans. But then yesterday happened in Minneapolis, where protesters are clashing with police over the murder of George Floyd, a black man, by a Minneapolis police officer. A reporter, a reporter of color, was even arrested by police last night for doing his constitutionally protected job on camera in full view of the nation. And the president of the United States is now fighting with Twitter, one of the biggest companies in our nation, over its new insistence on applying fact-checking and other standards to the president's random and sometimes violence-inspiring messages, which Twitter says violates its terms of service. Trump says that violates his rights. Twitter says this is just applying corporate policy evenly. At the bottom of all of these disputes lie very old tensions in our nation over what our rights are, how they're protected, and how vulnerable we can feel when our notions of freedom, basic freedoms like life and liberty, are at stake. So instead, we'd like to have a conversation about that today, about rights, what they are, what they aren't, when they're being infringed or respected, and how this nation's culture treats the rights of various people quite differently, and even unequally. Joining us now to talk about all of this is someone who spends a lot of time thinking about rights and how they are articulated and protected in our nation. Dahlia Lithwick is a reporter who writes about the courts and the law for Slate. She also hosts the podcast Amicus and wrote a piece last week titled, Refusing to Wear a Mask is a Uniquely American Pathology. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. Well, thank you for having me back, Stephen. And yes, I like you, I feel like this is just a head-snapping implosion of two, 200 years of how we think about rights. And so I'm, I'm glad to be here to think it through with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's start with the piece that, that you wrote in uh, Slate about this idea of saying, I don't want to wear a mask because that's that's infringing on my freedom. I, I think it's there's such thick irony in that argument, which is going on in a number of states right now as uh, things reopen and we get back to interacting with each other, at the same time that these protesters in Minnesota are protesting for very basic rights like life, uh, like security, uh, at this very same time that someone like Christian Cooper in, in Central Park in New York was fighting for his own life and rights uh, by videotaping uh, this woman, Amy Cooper, uh, saying that she was going to call the cops and make up a story 
about him in order to have him dealt with uh, in the way that she wanted. Uh, in everyone's mind, their rights are in, in, inviolate. In other words, that, that every, we all believe that our rights ought to be respected. But I think there's something really interesting and poignant about who believes their rights are being infringed and the way they react to that belief. There, there are just such differences uh, among us on, on, that, on that notion. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and, and especially when you sort of uh, pan back a little and look at the countries, I'm thinking of New Zealand, uh, that have done so well uh, in this pandemic. And, you know, it's so abundantly clear that the nations that have fared really well have had, you know, very trusted leaders who came out very early and said, you know, we don't know what all is going on, but we know for sure everybody should be wearing a mask. And that was one of the things we saw in New Zealand. And in addition to, you know, contact tracing and testing and the other things that haven't been manifest in the United States, there was simply a public trust that the state was doing what it thought was in everyone's best interest. And, you know, when you look at, at the American response, it's been completely subverted that. And what we've seen instead is, you know, just uh, almost immediately, and I guess here we have to say, you know, led by a president who refuses to wear a mask, this kind of funny locution of, I have a right to not wear a mask, that there's something kind of in, that inheres in my humanity and dignity that gives me a constitutional right to decline to wear a mask. And the very idea, and, you know, obviously masking is only a small part of it, but to me, as you said, it's very, very symbolic of a kind of uniquely American mistrust of the government, a uniquely American feeling that there's something about my individuated dignity that is compromised by being asked to cover my face. Um, and I guess I would just say, just to, to sort of reflect on your larger question, there was an amazing essay a couple of weeks ago by uh, Ibram Kendi in The Atlantic, mm -hmm. where he talks about this baked into the founding documents, this tension between what he calls sort of freedom to and freedom from. And he says that the Constitution itself gave slaveholders this kind of freedom to uh, do anything mm -hmm. and gave uh, slaves the freedom from nothing. And that if we don't recognize that that kind of dualism was baked right into the Constitution, that white people from the founding had the kind of notion that they had the right to do whatever they wanted and that people of color didn't even have the right to be, you know, sort of safe from bodily harm and that that's carried through no matter what you sort of say about the, the history after, that dualism and how we think about just basic rights, I think is what you're describing right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I, I think I don't want to fall into the trap of trivializing the questions uh, that, that are being raised by people who, who feel like uh, being told to wear a mask is, is uh, an infringement on, on their rights. I, I, I don't agree with uh, the, the position that they're taking or their interpretation 
of the rights that they have. But but I also think there is something uniquely American and importantly American uh, about asking that question and, and asking that pu- question through a public uh, process and an incisive process by which we determine where our rights lie and and, and don't. Um, and, and you are doing that in this piece uh, in Slate. You are talking about uh, the claim that this is somehow an infringement on, on people's rights and, and dealing with it in a substantive way. And, and, and I just want to say, like, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for checking me on that, because I think a lot of the resistance I had to that piece and the piece, you know, that I wrote before about the lockdown protesters has pointed out exactly what you're saying, which is you have to actually be very solicitous of these claims uh, of people saying my liberty is sort of foundational, and whether it's my right to, you know, as you know better than me, you know, walk into the state capitol carrying a gun uh, to protest, that that is a really profound American notion of freedom that I can't sort of push away simply because I think it's a little nutty in a pandemic to be thinking of liberty in those terms. And so you're absolutely right to say I think we need to have great generosity and solicitude for Americans who really, you know, rightly or wrongly have deeply felt notions about their constitutional freedoms that are being violated. I think one thing I would say that that I tried to do in this piece, and I think you're flicking at now, is, is to understand that we don't understand in the United States that state and federal constitutional freedoms are really profoundly different things. Mm. And so when we talk about, you know, the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, or the Second Amendment, you know, our right to assemble, our right to gather, what I think we forget is that there's this whole other sort of substratum of rights that are actually encroached by the states, that the states under the very, again, these founding documents, that the states have amazing police powers, right? What's called parents' patriot rights, the rights to do all manner of things that the federal government cannot do, particularly when it comes to public health and safety. And I think there's something about that sort of Tenth Amendment, you know, the notion that that the states actually have far greater powers uh, to restrict movement, to uh, demand health and safety measures uh, that fell out of the equation somehow, that um, we're very, very quick to fetishize our federal constitutional rights. And then we think that somehow the states have no authority over us. And actually, I don't think there's a lot of question, at least in terms of the doctrine, that in other pandemics and other times of national emergencies, governors actually have very, very broad powers yes. uh, to do these things. And somehow I think, I don't know if like we just missed that chapter, like when we were doing, <laughs> you know, when we were doing Schoolhouse Rock and like they forgot to tell us that the states actually have pretty sweeping authority in these moments, but that really fell out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the masks themselves and the idea that people are being told, you've got to wear a mask if you want to come into this establishment. And the CDC is saying that the masks are, you know, among the better ways, or the White House is saying that uh, these are one of the ways to prevent the spread uh, of, of the disease. What is it about that decree or that conclusion that has people pushing back 
the way that they are? Well, you know, I think, as you said at the outset, I think the mask itself somehow very quickly in this country became a symbol of a lot of really complicated things. And there's been, um, I, I noted in my piece, that there's been really smart writing about what the mask came to symbolize. And, you know, I think um, uh, uh, Ryan Lizza uh, says that the masks, you know, say something about uh, the invulnerability of the president, you know, that he doesn't need a mask because he has access to testing. Mm. And there's like a status thing there that, you know, it shows not needing a mask shows that you could get a test every hour and that's a new status symbol. And then there's just been an immense amount of really thoughtful writing about the mask as a symbol of, you know, femininity or vulnerability and weakness and that the mask has come to symbolize, you know, that you're, that you're kind of girly and not uh, tough and manly. And it's that sort of valence has really, we've seen that ramp up where a lot of protesters are saying that this is emasculating somehow. I love the the wordplay there. Um, But I think that for whatever reason, this mask, no mask, this kind of very binary question of whether I'm going to wear one or not, just became so freighted up with symbolism Mm. and uh, that then we can't even have a rational, like epidemiological conversation (laughs) about, it's very clear, all the data shows that like, One of the single best things we can do, particularly in the absence of good testing, is wear a mask. And not only that it protects everyone else, but it protects us. We know that in a way we didn't in March. And yet all of this symbolism uh, has, you know, and there was like the famous case, I think I mentioned it. In my piece, the guy in California who actually wore a Klan mask in order to, you know, prove a point uh, about, you know, race and and masculinity. So I think that for whatever reason, um, you know, in in a lot of Asian countries, it's much more socially acceptable for everyone to don a mask. There's something, in my view, that's sort of very performative (laughs) about I want my face to be seen, that makes me American, that doesn't track in other countries. And that to me, that was sort of where I ended my piece, sort of trying to figure out if just this need to be seen as yourself, as an individual with your face uncovered, Mm. somehow feels like it's constitutionally protected in a country that really puts a high, high, high value on that kind of individuation. Yeah. Uh, And yet, uh, if you sort of prosecute through this this question of rights and whether rights are even implicated by the suggestion or the requirement that someone wear a mask, uh, as you point out, you come up with pretty thin, thin gruel for the, for, for the argument. There isn't really anything that prevents the state, uh, especially states themselves, from doing this kind of uh, action as, a, as an imperative of public health. It is, that's one of the things that endows the state uh, with enormous sweep of power. That, that's exactly right. And that's why I, I think that somehow a lot of the people who are protesting masks are, are sort of reading state authority out of the equation. And that simply, you know, you can like it or not, but that is sort of what the law says. And then I think, you know, there was another 
really interesting turn on this where one of the, uh, I think an Ohio uh, lawmaker who refused to wear a mask, uh, he, he said because God doesn't want it, right? That we are made in the image of God and, you know, God wants to see our faces. And mm. it, again, I think it's it's that same very, very, you know, I, I don't mean to, 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 to in any way drag on Americans, but this notion that, like, I need to be seen and that somewhere buried in the penumbras of the Constitution <laughs> is my right to be seen, to have my face seen uh, by God or by others. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, I'm going to pun now, but it's sort of made out of whole cloth. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet, and yet, it's really deeply felt. And I, it does go back to your original question, which is like, I do think we have to have sympathy for people who really believe that they have some right that's being violated while we say, you know, as a sort of completely descriptive matter, the state can tell you to wear a mask. Mm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you tuned in. My guest is Dahlia Lithwick. She is someone who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. She wrote a piece last week titled Refusing to Wear a Mask is a Uniquely American Pathology. We had planned to have Dahlia on just to talk about the struggle, the tensions uh, that are unfolding as we reopen America over the restrictions that we are all being asked to live under and the implications that those restrictions have for our rights uh, as Americans. But then the week happened uh, and all of uh, the different controversies that we are seeing in the headlines uh, seem to implicate these notions of freedom and liberty that we have many in far starker circumstances uh, than the simple question of whether you might have to wear a mask or not. In Minneapolis, uh, overnight, we saw yet another night of violent confrontation between protesters and police uh, over the death of George Floyd, who was killed by Minneapolis police officers earlier this week. Uh, We also see the president of the United States engaged in a rhetorical war with Twitter, one of the nation's largest companies, which has started to apply its own terms of service to the president's tweets, which for three years now have really uh, tested the bounds of those terms of service uh, in terms of uh, their fact uh, checking, their factual uh, accuracy, and also many times in terms of of their call to violence. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you make of this epic struggle of rights right now in the country as we deal with a pandemic, but also as really old narratives about liberty and freedom uh, continue to raise their heads and challenge us to decide what kind of nation we want to be, what kind of culture we want to have inside that nation and how we protect and articulate uh, the most basic rights for many groups, including, of course, African-Americans who were for many, many years left out of that protection. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. 
uh, and uh, you can go to Twitter as well, and uh, uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. We're actually going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get to your calls. Uh, uh, Ryan in Ferndale, Lola in Dearborn, you're up first. We've also got lots of other people calling in, and we'll hear more from Dahlia Lithwick about all of these issues. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Welcome back to Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined. My guest is Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about courts and the law for Slate, hosts the podcast Amicus. She wrote a really provocative piece last week titled Refusing to Wear a Mask is a Uniquely American Pathology. We're talking about rights in a broader sense, uh, this idea of the rights that we have, how we protect them, how we articulate them. Uh, We are seeing lots of instances of the tensions around our rights uh, rear their heads right now. If you want to join the conversation, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Ryan in Ferndale. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Uh, Long-time listener. Really respect your journalism. Thanks for having uh, this conversation today. Thank you very much for saying that, Ryan. Uh, my comments quick. Um, I wanted to compare uh, wearing a mask to drunk driving. And uh, just as no one has the right to uh, go out and drive drunk and endanger others, I think no one has the right to refuse to wear a mask where they're required and endanger others of, you know, infecting them with the, the COVID-19. I think it's a great comparison. And we all totally accept that no one's allowed to, you know, and no one should drive drunk. Um, and I think um, that wearing a mask is similar to that. Yeah, uh, Ryan, that's an interesting analogy, and I and, and I of course uh, agree with you that that it's the same sort of basis, I guess, for state action in in both of those in both of those cases. Uh, let's also quickly go to Karen in Clarkston. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. And I was also calling about the fact that I feel when someone chooses not to wear a mask, it's infringing on my rights. But I'd like to change the culture so people can be proud of wearing a mask and that they think of it as a way of protecting each other. And that's true patriotism in my mind, Mm. that we take care of one another. And when we choose not to wear a mask and risk other people's lives, that's not patriotic. Mm. Yeah, uh, Karen, that's a really great point uh, as well. Uh, Dahlia, I, both of those callers, I think, raise kind of the same issue, which is that in this country, we think of our rights in, in many instances as uh, overweening. In other words, that that I, my rights have to be protected at any cost. And often I'm not thinking about the line between my rights and somebody else's. In other words, uh, the point at which the exercise of my rights infringes on someone else. I I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, both Karen and Ryan make the point that, you know, first and foremost, we come together collectively uh, to be governed, not 
uh, only because we want to have the right to do whatever we want, but that we're willing to cede some of those rights so that the collective flourishes. And whether, you know, it's, it's seatbelts or, you know, it's, it's speed limits, you know, every single day we give up the right to do a million things that we might want to do uh, simply because it's better for everyone. So they're both right, and you're right. This is not a controversial proposition. This is why, you know, we sort of don't live in caves and, like, clobber things and eat them. Mm -hmm. It's that it's in everyone's interest to do certain things that may not, they may pinch a little, but they're better for everyone. And I think, again, this is a good place to remember that if you are black or brown in America, you don't have that same, you know, imputed right to do whatever you want. And you don't need to look any further than the lockdown protests, mm -hmm. right? Where mm -hmm. fundamentally white people armed to the teeth are able to walk into a state capitol and law enforcement sort of stands down, as opposed to what, as you said, we're seeing, you know, all over the country in, in you know, Minneapolis and Louisville, um, in Denver, where if you're a person of color, it is not assumed that you have the right to do things like that. Yes. In fact, it is assumed that you're dangerous. Yes. Uh, and that brings us back to that subject, I think, and what we saw overnight in Minneapolis and over the last couple of nights. This also is a question of rights and their articulation, this idea of how you push back against clear violations of people's rights. I mean, I, you, you hear a lot of people, uh, including the president of the United States, describing the rioters as the problem and the people who need to be dealt with. I haven't heard the president say a whole lot about the Minneapolis police, uh, who the department that's responsible for the death uh, of George Floyd. Uh, again, the way we see these things, the way that we interpret these things really depends on whose rights we're thinking about. And when it's African-Americans, we just, uh, as a culture, uh, don't, they don't, the same value does not attach uh, to the same rights. I think that's exactly correct. And I think, you know, it's probably worth at least flagging. I think you did it in your intro that, you know, the president did tweet, um, about Minneapolis last night, and it looks a little bit like he tweeted a threat, right? He yes. said he's going to send in the National Guard, and then he, you know, used this horrific, you know, quote from a, a racist lawmaker in 1967 and said, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And that's unbelievably um, freighted with meaning. Um, so I think that you're exactly correct. You know, on the one hand, this is the same president who was tweeting out, you know, liberate the states, right? You have to free yourself from the oppression of your governor and their lockdown measures. And now he's at least, uh, Twitter, you know, has now labeled it as inciting violence, but he's now making threats about shooting looters. So I, I do think you're exactly right to say that the presumption that you start with kind of dictates where you end up. And if the presumption is that certain people have a right to protest, even using, you know, weapons, and that's freedom, and other people on the streets protesting are inherently criminals and thugs who should be shot, that doesn't suggest that freedom means the same thing uh, for everybody in this country. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little about the president's 
spat with Twitter, there has been a lot of controversy since he has been president about his use of that platform and Twitter's terms of service, which seem to say that some of the things that he said in the past shouldn't be allowed. And yet he is the president of the United States. And I think he's gotten a lot of leeway because of that from from Twitter. But talk about Twitter's attempt to crack down on him. He says it's a violation of his First Amendment rights. Uh, where, are rights where are rights implicated in that dispute? Well, I think that, you know, the, the single most important thing, again, is that we, we fetishize our constitutional rights sometimes at our peril. And, of course, Donald Trump is saying that he has a First Amendment constitutional right to tweet whatever he wants. And any law professor, probably any first-year law student, will tell you, no, Twitter's a private platform. It's not the state, and you don't have First Amendment rights against private entities. And so the claims that he was making midweek when he said he was being censored, those those are actually wrong. And I would say more so that the decision finally that Twitter took under a lot of pressure, right, because Donald Trump was tweeting out um, false murder conspiracy claims about Joe Scarborough, the, the TV host, and under immense pressure, Twitter didn't decide to take down his tweets. They decided to simply label them with a fact check that said uh, these tweets are not accurate. And, and the two tweets that they checked uh, earlier in the week actually had nothing to do with racism or looting or Joe Scarborough. They just had to do with vote by mail. Um, so it's interesting. I think you're exactly right. Under under pressure, after years and years of allowing Donald Trump to tweet false statements every day and, and as you say, incitement every day, they took the decision to just simply fact check him. And uh, the president yesterday <laughs> said, you know, he's signing an executive order that's going to try to change the law hmm. so that uh, he can't be censored. And of course, that executive order, I mean, a president can ex- can issue as many executive orders as he or she wants, uh, but that's also subject to uh, the courts and and their interpretation of of their constitutionality, right? And I, everyone that I have spoken to in looking into this question has said it's clear that you know what the president is trying to do uh, a uh, it will not affect the changes he wants in terms of censorship, but b is likely unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Dahlia Lithwick, uh, writer for Slate. Uh, it is always great to catch up with you here. Really great to have you here for this important conversation today. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to talk with Graham Mooney, an associate professor at the Institute of History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University and author of a piece in The Atlantic titled How to Talk About Freedom During a Pandemic. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Lola in Dearborn, Larry in Detroit, Bernadette in Old Redford. We will get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Welcome back to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you 
have joined us. Anti-stay-at-home protesters in Michigan have been pushing for the state's opening for weeks now, and it seems it may at least partially be happening. Corralling the state's population into isolation for months has been really difficult for Governor Gretchen Whitmer. With summer upon us, convincing citizens to adhere to social distancing guidelines seems even more difficult. The coronavirus pandemic has tested this nation's ideals of freedom and liberty, at times directly colliding with public health and safety protocols. So how do government officials convince a nation so embedded in personal liberty to act in the name of the collective? Graham Mooney, associate professor at the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic arguing that there is more than one way to talk about freedom during a pandemic. Graham Mooney, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, students. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, so ideas of personal liberty and freedom are deeply ingrained in the American ethos. And in our last segment, we were talking about the many different ways in which we're seeing that play out right now. But ro- what role have those ideals played in this pandemic from your perspective? Well, um, from the historian's perspective, particularly from uh, you know, a historian coming from studying British history in particular, where freedom is also a, you know, a, 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 a debated concept, but also central to the idea of British identity. Um, you know, it, it plays out in a number of ways, but one of the, the key ways is the way in which it asks people to make a choice between different kinds of freedom. So in the particular example of this pandemic, you know, we're getting a lot of... Um, advocacy for you know, the freedom to do things that you would think of as just people going about their daily life, you know, going to get a haircut, going down to the store to buy groceries and goods without being asked to social distance, wear a mask, uh, and so on. Whereas you know, the other freedom that um, is also imbued in that is the freedom to be sick and be sick in the way that you want to be sick. Um, and so the question there becomes is, well, is that a freedom that is something that is worth compromising everybody else, everybody else is helpful? And so historically, that debate centers around things like um, isolation hospitals, around um, social distancing measures that we've seen uh, in the present pandemic of isolating people in their homes, not going to work, not going to school. And the key is that by doing those things, society becomes more free from disease. So it's a freedom from disease rather than a freedom to do something that you think you have the right to do in terms of going about your own daily life. Mm. Uh, In your piece for The Atlantic, you write that we can learn something from the handling of past pandemics, specifically 19th century England. How did government and health officials approach that question of public safety and individual freedom back then? Yeah, um, well, the the sorts of interventions we're talking about um, in in Britain in the 19th century are a set of uh, measures that actually came to be called, in Europe at least, the English system. And they were based on uh, the reporting of infectious diseases, so notifying local health authorities when, where somebody was who had a particular infectious disease. Now, that disease might have been smallpox, it might have been scarlet fever or diphtheria, diseases we don't 
hear so much about today. But it would also be influenza, for example, which you know, we've heard a lot about the influenza pandemic in the early 20th century. So reporting of diseases is one thing, but really that was like the gateway legislation for a lots of other things to happen. <laughs> so, for example, if you had an infectious disease, you were obliged to allow your home to be disinfected. Also, you know, things like your books, uh, uh, carpets, drapes, all your belongings had to be disinfected as well. You could also be forcibly removed to hospital um, and isolation hospitals. Um, and that was, you know, a key component of people's um, opposition to these sorts of measures because they could, you know, they were being taken from their homes sometimes for a very long time hmm. until they were free from symptoms, um, symptoms of an infectious disease. <coughs> Excuse me. So what this system did, this English system did, was raise questions about what is appropriate action for government to take in the context of epidemics and pandemics. And this really is when public health was becoming established as a, as a routine government activity during the course of the 19th century. So what it, what it was really doing is saying, is, is public health, in what, in what ways is public health a sort of a legitimate activity for government to be getting involved with? And that's a very different perspective to other ways in which um, people were used to managing their health and Ill illness, which was normally just through you know, consulting with a, a physician privately, um, being prescribed um, therapies and medicines. Public health was a very different, different sort of approach because it focused on the whole population rather than individual patients. Mm. Uh, again, if you want to join the conversation here, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about the pushback against the governor's stay-at-home orders. What do you think about the requirements and the restrictions that we will go back out into the world and have to observe uh, as the pandemic takes another turn, one toward uh, a little more interaction uh, among among human beings than we've seen over the last few weeks. Uh, is that uh, is this whole thing an implication of the rights that we enjoy as an Americans as Americans? Is it an infringement on those rights to ask us to live our lives differently? Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. Um, let's go to Rob in Plymouth. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, I was just having this conversation the other day, and in regards to you know our liberties, I rem I'm old enough to remember when we were forced to wear seatbelts, and I, I was you know young enough to say, you know, this is my body. I don't you're restricting me. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. It's all about me. Um, now with the masks. I came up with an idea, and it's not so much a political divide or a racial divide or any other kind of divide, but it's more of a, it's an empathetic divide. I see in this country that we have, you know, the, it's almost a continuum of empathy. So when I get out of the car and I walk into a store, I walk into any place, I put that mask on. It's not to protect me, it's to protect other people, because mm -hmm. we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we are carrying it, if we can spread it. So if... We look. We approach it from from an act of empathy, and and protecting others. Then I think that's that's really the the, the argument that we have right now. And if we're our own pride, and we think that you know, if we're covering our face, 
is to protect us. No, it's about protecting other people. Mm. That's just my thoughts. Yeah. Rob, I really appreciate the, the call and and your thoughts there. Uh, Graham Mooney, talk about that idea of empathy and collective public good and how we balance that against the idea of individual rights. This country does that differently than almost any other country on the planet, and I think that helps explain some of the arguments that we find ourselves in or some of the tensions that arise when people suggest that, hey, you ought to act uh, with the the with the collective in mind as opposed to just uh, on an indiv- individual basis. Yeah, I think Rob makes a really good point, um, actually. And the seatbelts one is a is a fascinating example. I'll come mm-hmm. back to COVID in a minute. But one of the things about seatbelts is, yeah, yeah, this is my responsibility. I can take that decision to wear a seatbelt or not. And even other people in the car, if they want to, if they want to uh, belt it up, then fantastic. That's great. But for me, don't want to do it. But the, what you're forgetting about that in the, in the, is, you know, say you're in an accident, um, you know, and you go through the windshield, um, then your decision not to wear a, a, a seatbelt has different implications for, say, you know, healthcare costs because, you know, you're going to be attended to, you're going to end up in, maybe probably end up in hospital, maybe taking, you know, taking up huge, you know, huge medical resources. Um, but at some point, somebody has to pay for, whether it's you or the government or somebody else. So there's, there's a whole set of knock-on effects and consequences around that. And you could say the same about not wearing a mask uh, in the context of COVID. Yes, you might, you know, a mask isn't really about protecting you necessarily, although, you know, we don't know exactly what the, the, the sort of odds are if you wear a mask against not. But really what we're saying here is that this is, a, we're all in this together, it's a collective thing. And even if, you, even if you're not symptomatic, even if you're asymptomatic, you could still have the disease and you could still be giving it to other people. So, you know, and this boils down to what in the 19th century, in terms of liberty, was called the harm principle. It was, you know, you, you, you can't have a behaviour that, um, that, you know, that, that, that sort of promotes liberty if it harms other people. So you can enjoy your own liberties, but the point at which we begin to think about constraining those liberties is when your behaviour affects other people adversely. So I think Rob is really um, on the ball there, saying that empathy is a really big part of understanding how we can and should uh, comply with or adhere to um, you know, the, the sorts of regulations that we're being asked to um, comply with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Rob, thanks very much the call uh, and the thoughts. Let's go to Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to the uh, show. Hi, uh, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Lola? I'm doing fine. Okay. Uh, I look at it as being this way, that I have friends that are from the South, and they feel, you know, like they're being threatened with telling them what to do. They just don't handle it very well. So I'm a psychiatrist, and I try to get them through it, but they're heated about all of this. It's because of the fact they don't want to be told what to do. They say their parents were told what to do. They don't want to be in that at all. Okay, now I have a mask, but my daughter had it custom made for me. I, <laughs> you, people would have to see it. I 
Well, she got the pink high heels on it with these furry shoes <laughs> on it. A perf- I'm serious, a perfume bottle on it. And then, gosh, she's got a purse on it. But see, it's custom for me because she know how I am. I'm not putting anything on her face <laughs> unless I want to. But see, I appreciate her because she educated me with putting, see, I had to look at it. And then, gosh, she's got this glitter, but it's not glitter that's going to come off. I'm telling you, she paid good for it. It's really custom. And so when I look at it, I have to look at it and like it. <laughs> Before you're going to wear it. And it's terrible because, you see, when I when I think about it, I say, here I am, spoiled. <laughs> Lola, I really appreciate the call yeah, and, but and that story. And so, you know, but like I look at it and say, I thank you, Stephen, so much for having a program like this. So, it's because you see some champs are spoiled. And I say, here I am, a champ. Lola, thanks again Lola's comment reminds me of you know, when wearing spectacles used to be, you know, very unfashionable. But now there's an incredible fashion, fashion statement. If you can get a mask that makes you look great, if that's how you have to justify wearing one, then fantastic. I mean, I would say to Lola and a friend is that, you know, being told to do something sounds like your freedom and your liberty is being compromised. But if you if you explode that out, if you broaden that out and say, yeah, but without disease, without the threat of this disease, then we'll be even more free mm. eventually in the long run. Um, you know, how free can you be when you're dead? You know, it's, it's not a, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't compute in the same way. So you have to think about, I think, yeah, you have to think about what freedom actually means to people. Um, and, it, and it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't just mean having to wear a mask or being told to wear a mask. Yeah. It should also mean being free from you know, disease and having the right to health. And we can only achieve that through collective action, uh, you know, individual actions, yeah, or, or, or all of us making our own decisions that go in very diverse directions aren't going to achieve that in this particular pandemic, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Again, Lola, uh, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Liz in Detroit. Liz, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are um, you? I'm good. I could not uh, give a comment that's more accurate than your guest. So I won't try because he's given all of the reasons that we should look at what is liberty and rights versus defiance and what's good for the great for the greater good. But I will say this, we have to at some point decide what is liberty and freedom and when does it morph into just actual defiance. Hmm. And you know, we can we can we can go debate about what I like to wear, what I don't like to wear. And I think one of the things that has made America a great place is that we have had boundaries and we have had some form of what a decency and order. And I just don't know if people realize that this notion or this this feeling, because a lot of it is just feeling, that I have to be able to do what I want to do. That premieres across the board. You can't say, well, I want to do what I want to do and do it when I want to do it, Mm. and nobody else can do it. So you have to decide, what is it that we really want? Do we want decency and order, or do we just want everybody to do whatever you want to do? If I want to run some red lights, I can run some red lights. If I want (laughs) to drive across the medium, I can drive across the medium. Because there has to be a boundary. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if people realize that be care my gra- my very wise grandmother told me when I was very young, be careful what you ask for because you just 
might be. <laughs> but I want to thank your guest, and, yeah. and he's been very accurate. And people know these things that he said. People know these things. Mm. They know them. Mm. It's just that they don't want to adhere to them or act upon them. But thank you for having the conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. Conversation we need to keep having. Yeah, no, thank you very much uh, for joining yeah. as well. Go ahead, Graham. I, I mean, I could say to, to, yeah, to Liz, um, again, very good point. And freedom isn't a static thing. It, it change, you know, our ideas of freedom change over time. You know, what incorporates freedom should change over time. And it's right that we're having these debates, I think. Um, yeah, but the one, one thing I would say is that, you know, to frame it in the concept of citizenship as well, you know, because people say, well, this is un-American, it's, unpatri- you know, it's unpatriotic to do these kinds of things. You know, I'm an American citizen, I shouldn't have to wear a mask or whatever. But citizenship, you know, implies not just, um, you know, not just duties uh, and responsibilities. It's a balance between, you know, your responsibility um, to sort of, you know, to, to behave in a certain kind of way. And, you know, if, if an American way is partly, you know, it's about being compassionate, it's about being a, a, lead, a leader in these sorts of things, then citizenship is another way in which we can think about what the role of freedom is. Hmm. Uh, let's quickly go to Bernadette, Bernadette in Old Redford. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, what I wanted to address is um, related to telling the truth uh-huh. and President Trump. Why doesn't uh, Twitter just kick them off the platform for lying. Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's a really great question, Bernadette, especially given what Twitter has decided to do uh, just three years into the the president's you know behavior on their platform. Uh, why not just uh, eliminate them, uh, Graham? We were not talking with you about uh, the president and Twitter, but we had been talking about it this hour. We've got about a minute left. I wonder what you think about uh, Twitter's attempt to, to deal with the president's language uh, and how that implicates this this rights question that we're talking about. Well, it, it, I think the social media question is a huge one, in, and it's not one that is... And it's interesting that it's been being... Um, sort of sharpened in the light of a, of a pandemic, because I think this question of truth or the post-truth world is kind of, you know, been simmering for a, a good few years now. Mm-hmm. And, so, you yeah, for, know, for, for it's come to a head during this pandemic is particularly important because it's really, this is really a battle around, you know, around science and around politics and what the role of science is in politics. And, you know, if science is going to be used in, in, a, in certain ways, um, then you know, if it's a fact-based discipline and a fact-based pursuit, then we have to make sure that it's not being twisted in ways that politi- politicians can use, and the way in which they use it is often through yeah. social media platforms. Yes. Uh, Graham Moody, thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. A great conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Also want to shout out Claire Brennan, an associate producer who took the lead on all of the behind scenes planning for today's show. Good job for her. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.